June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. It's Sunday, January 13th. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this is Face the Nation. The partial government shutdown continues, and prospects for a deal look grim. I have never been more depressed about moving forward than right now. Across the country, anger over the shutdown. In Washington, confusion about mixed messages from President Trump about whether he intends to declare a national emergency at the border to build his wall. Probably I will do it. I would almost say definitely. I'd rather not do it because this is something that Congress should easily do. We'll talk with House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy about why it's not so easy. Plus, former Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson on what constitutes a national security emergency. Plus, new problems for the president as news reports raise more questions about his ties to Russia. And as the U.S. begins to withdraw troops from Syria, we'll ask Secretary of State Mike Pompeo about the administration's conflicting statements on the drawdown. Margaret, uh, the president's guidance is incredibly clear. Finally, let's go work. We'll talk with the latest candidate to enter the 2020 presidential campaign, former San Antonio Mayor Julian Castro. And as always, we'll have analysis on all the news ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. It's day 23 of the partial government shutdown now the longest in history, and there's no end in sight. Some 800,000 federal workers did not get paid Friday, and even President Trump concedes he has, quote, no idea whether he can get a deal with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. We spoke earlier with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo from Abu Dhabi, one of the stops on a nine-country trip through the Middle East. Mr. Secretary, uh, we are in the middle of this shutdown, and I know a number of State Department employees are not getting paid, including a quarter of U.S. employees in foreign countries. You've been going to U.S. embassies. What are you telling staff about when they can expect a paycheck? Look, it's, it's unfortunate that um, we're in this shutdown. I, I wish we weren't, too. I, I hope that it's resolved quickly, and I've certainly told our, our teams that. Uh, but you have to know uh, these great Americans who are working in our embassies around the world. They understand the mission. They understand its importance. Uh, they understand that um, whether the government is open or closed, they have a task to do, and they are hard at it. Well, I, I do want to ask you, since uh, we are so focused on what's happening with this shutdown uh, here at home, the State Department, when it comes to the uh, border issues, has issued a report in 2017 about counterterrorism, and it says that there is no credible evidence that international terrorist groups have established bases in Mexico or sent operatives via Mexico into the United States. It adds the southern border is vulnerable, but terrorist groups likely seek other means of trying to enter the United States. 
How does this match with the claim that there is a border security crisis? Make, make no mistake about it, Margaret. Uh, keeping our southern border secure is an important national security component. It's, it's critical that we do that well. There's a real risk to the United States of America. We need to take this seriously. We need to secure our southern border. We need to make sure that those who want to do us harm don't have a way to access us in that way. There are many things we have to do. One of the reasons I'm in the Middle East is to work on uh, prevailing against terror. Uh, there are lots of elements of this, but border security is certain and certainly an important component. So is the State Department report wrong to say that this is not how terrorists are trying to enter the United States? Margaret, terrorists try to get into our country lots of ways. One of the ways they can come in is across our southern border. Uh, what you saw was an unclassified report. Make no mistake about it. Terrorists will always find uh, the weakest link, and we need to make sure that the weakest link in our national security is on our southern border. I want to get to your uh, trip through the Middle East, but I first want to ask you about this New York Times report uh, that says right after President Trump fired former FBI Director James Comey, the FBI began investigating whether President Trump himself was a potential threat to national security and whether he'd been working for Russia or unintentionally influenced by Moscow. What is your reaction to this? I'm not going to comment on New York Times stories, uh, but I'll certainly say this. The, the notion that President Trump is a threat to American national security is absolutely ludicrous. Just to clarify, since you were CIA director, did you have any idea that this investigation was happening? <laughs> Margaret, 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 I, I've answered this question repeatedly, indeed, on your show. Uh, the, the idea that's contained in the New York Times story that President Trump was a threat to American national security is, is silly on its face and not worthy of a response. One of the reasons you're in the Middle East is to reassure and explain to some of our allies what the U.S. policy in Syria is. Uh, so I'd like you to do that for us today because the Pentagon announced yesterday that it actually has begun its withdrawal from Syria. Yet the U.S. National Security Advisor, John Bolton, said that wouldn't happen until two things. One, the U.S. defeated ISIS, and two, Turkey assured us it wouldn't go after our Kurdish allies. Have those two conditions been met? Margaret, uh, the president's guidance is incredibly clear. The roughly 2,000 uniformed soldiers that are in Syria today are going to be withdrawn. That, that activity is underway. Uh, we're going to do so in an orderly, deliberate way, uh, a way that protects America's national security a way that allows us to continue the important mission that they were on, uh, the counterterrorism mission, uh, the effort to make sure that with the destruction of ISIS is not only complete, but that the resurgence is not possible, our efforts to counter the threat from uh, terrorism stemming from the Islamic Republic of Iran, those are all real missions. The tactical change we've made and the withdrawal of those 2,000 troops is just that, a tactical change. Mission remains the same. So has Turkey's president promised you not to attack our Kurdish allies? Yeah, look, uh, when President Erdogan and President uh, Trump spoke, uh, they talked about this issue. Uh, the Turks have made clear uh, that they understand that there are uh, folks down in Syria that have their rights. We also want to make sure uh, that those in uh, Syria aren't attacking terrorists, aren't attacking Turkey from Syria. Uh, we're fully engaged, Ambassador Jeffries, and fully engaged in conversations with the Turks. Uh, as well as with the SDF in Syria, to make sure that we accomplish all of those missions. We can, we can do each of those things, Margaret. The SDF, among some of the fighters that we were talking about, Kurdish allies there, just to explain for our audience. That's right. I, I, I want to ask you here, though, because yes, you know as a diplomat, 
the, the threat of credible use of military force is what gives you power at the negotiating table. How does taking out U.S. troops from Syria get you any closer to expelling Iran? Margaret, the United States of America can project military power from lots of places in the world. Uh, the absence of a couple thousand soldiers on the ground in Syria in no way materially diminishes the capacity of the United States of America and our amazing armed forces to deliver American power to accomplish our objectives anywhere in the world. That certainly includes in Syria. It certainly includes uh, uh, into Iran, if need be. We still have those tools. American diplomats still have that leverage and that power standing behind them. I'm very confident in our military capabilities here in the Middle East. So by that, are you saying that having U.S. troops in nearby Iraq will fill any kind of vacuum left by pulling out of Syria? Margaret, we have lots of tools in the arsenal. I was out visiting some amazing warriors out at NAVSET yesterday uh, in Bahrain. Uh, we have uh, an enormous amount of American military capacity. Our, our ability to achieve uh, what we need to do militarily is there. My task as America's Secretary of State is to make sure that we don't have to use that tool, that we get the diplomatic outcomes to secure uh, the Middle East and keep it stable and protect the American people as well. When it comes to Iran, the Trump administration has taken um, some you know, confrontational uh, tactics here, pulling out a nuclear cord, saying that uh, Iranian threats would be matched here. But we saw this week another American, a Navy vet, Michael White, has been behind Iranian bars since July. So the Trump administration is not stopping Iran from taking Americans hostage. What is happening with this American? This administration is proud of the work that we've done to get Americans released all across the world. Uh, with respect to the Michael White case in particular, I can't say much. It's an ongoing uh, consular matter. Uh, but the American people should know. We take the security of every American, wherever they are traveling in the world, as one of our foremost priorities. Uh, we will continue to work to get each of them back. And your point, your point about the Islamic Republic of Iran is spot on. It's why the JCPOA was such a horrible idea. Many Americans are being held there today that were taken by the Iranian regime. And these are a group of people who are among the worst terrorists in the world and who have the least respect for human rights in the world. And it's why this administration has taken the very hard line you just described against Iran. Is the Trump administration open to a prisoner swap with Iran? I'm not going to talk about something like that. Well, I ask you because Michael White's mother spoke to CBS and she said she would like the administration to negotiate for her son. She said, what is a human life worth? I would like the U.S. to negotiate. I want him home. What can you tell her you're doing to bring her son home? I have great sympathy for the families of those Americans who are wrongfully detained all across the world. Uh, and we do everything we can every day to get the return. We use our diplomatic tools uh, in every corner of the world to reach out to these places to get these uh, young men and women home. Uh, we're intent to do that in Iran. We're intent to do that all across the world. We, we take this, this obligation as a solemn one, and this administration's had quite a few successes. I hope we have more. Potentially open to negotiations, then? We're using every tool that we have in our arsenal to get these Americans back home, wherever we find them. Ambassador Bolton said the next summit with Kim Jong-un would be in January or February. We're in that window. When will we see President Trump sit down with the North Korean leader? We're working out the details, Margaret. You'll be among the first to know. I know, sir, you're at the end of this trip. You will be headed to Saudi Arabia. It has been about 100 days since Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi was brutally murdered. 
Will you raise this issue with Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince? Of course. Then what will you say? <laughs> I'll say what, uh, Margaret, I'll say what we've said consistently. Uh, America's position both privately and publicly is the same. Uh, this was an outrageous act, uh, an unacceptable murder. Uh, those who were responsible will be held accountable by the United States of America. We're determined to do that. We're determined to get at the facts just as quickly and as uh, comprehensively as we can. Uh, we've had a, a policy that's been remarkably consistent with respect to this. We, uh, we, 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 like the rest of the world, value human rights all across the globe. And the murder of Jamal Khashoggi was outrageous, and we'll hold those responsible accountable. And then we'll talk about all the important things we do with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and all the support they provide to keep Americans in Kansas and Colorado and California and in Washington, D.C. safe. Mr. Secretary, thank you very much for your time. Safe travels. Margaret, thank you very much. You have a great day. Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the Sleep Number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a Sleep Number bed. Sleep Number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Find your competitive edge with proven quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number. We turn now to House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy. Congressman, you're usually in your home state in California when we talk to you, so we like having you here in person in snowy D.C. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Uh, I want to get to this Washington Post report before we talk about the shutdown. It, it says that the president has tried to conceal the substance of his conversations with Vladimir Putin, even taking away the notes from his translator who sat in, the interpreter in the room uh, during their talks. Does it concern you? Uh, that there's no public record of what the president discussed with Vladimir Putin, the leader of the country that interfered in the 2016 elections. Well, Margaret, what I do know is what this administration, this Congress has done. We've been very tough on Russia. Look at the sanctions that we have taken with this administration, one on the election meddling that Russia has done, the movement of Russia with inside Ukraine as well. And I just listened to the president last night. He's more than willing to have it open to what uh, that discussion was about, he said on a news show last night. But I know what the president likes to do. He likes to create a personal relationship, build that relationship, even rebuild that relationship like he does with other world leaders around. But this around. was keeping the record of the conversation from the national security advisor, the person who is supposed to be the top advisor to the president. Well, in hearing the president last night on a show, he says he was more than willing to let that information go out. So that's what does I know Congress of right now. Does Congress want to see any of this or speak to the interpreter? I'd like to the president to be able to build these relationships. I know this administration and I know this Congress is very tough on Russia. And we will continue to be so. But I want this president to be able to build 
a relationship, even on a personal level, with all the world leaders as well. I know you speak to the president. Have you ever asked him about this? I haven't asked him about this situation yet because it just came out. But I did talk to the president yesterday about the shutdown. I know this president is focused on giving this government open. That's why the president is here. That's why I'm here in Washington. The challenge has been from the very beginning, the president has made numerous offers about this shutdown. Reasonable, too. Moving further to the Democratic side. And there has not been one offer coming back from the Democrats. It is unacceptable that 800,000 U.S. employees are not being paid. You know what we're arguing over? One-tenth of one percent of the federal budget. And it's not as though we're asking Democrats to do something they haven't done before. They've voted for border wall and fencing. We have Democrats, even the new progressives from California, Katie Hill, said she would vote for a wall. You had the chairman. The, barrier, the, the defining the barrier is the point that you're kind of stuck on. Right I would now. take the language we had voted on before. The president even said he would add in the no concrete. Two thousand and six. No, just the appropriations bills I that see. we taken prior. That would allow us to do the job that needs to be done. You, you know, the chairman of Armed Services. He actually says walls work, and he was supportive of it. Mm -hmm. We had our own former president, President Obama, in twenty fourteen, said there was a crisis on the border. Right. The new governor of California, Gavin Newsom, used it in his, in his inaugural address, said there is a crisis along the border. The only people who believe there is not is Nan, Speaker Pelosi and Senator Schumer. Well, they, they agree Schumer. In, in border security funding and offered $1.3 billion for that. It's the how it's spent that it seems to be you're disagreeing on. Well, but who let in me... America believes in border security doesn't have some form of a barrier? Because I've heard Democrats say they want a form of a barrier. The president has moved from a concrete to a steel barrier. So I've watched this president look for compromise, there just has been no compromise on the other side. But should you reopen the government while you have this argument? We can't have this government reopened. The president is correct. Less than so 45 minutes. So you would have minutes. some sort of you CR to open the I've government and in, then continue I've the been in every argument. single one of those meetings. I watched the president turn to Nancy Pelosi and say, okay, if I reopen the government right now in 30 days, mm -hmm. could we have border security? She said, no, not at all. So you that is the real challenge. Who is holding this government up? Is Senator Schumer and Speaker Pelosi. Well, the, the federal government workers are the people paying the price right now. And you they have 10,000 of them in your district. And that so what is, do you tell them? When are they going to get paid? That is unacceptable. That's why I'm here right now. I'm, I'm not in Puerto Rico. I'm here because I want to solve this problem. And you, you know what is do you happening? Have in a each way one to of those, pay those workers while you continue arguing we just over voted. We just voted on Friday and sent it to the president of law to make sure they are being paid when this is done. What we need but to have for happen, those living paycheck to paycheck now matters. Yeah, that's unacceptable. And where has the president been this whole time? What what those constituents and what your viewers need to understand before we ever got to this point, when the Republicans had the House, mm -hmm. they moved a bill to the Senate. In the Senate, it takes sixty votes. Mm -hmm. Senator Schumer would not come to a compromise. He would not even come to a vote. He left. When we sat during that break so before the, the new swearing do, in... Do you oppose the president declaring a national emergency since what you're describing sounds like you're not going anywhere? You know what? Because the he, emergency he's talked about Act possibly using money that would be allocated to California for disaster relief. That's the, your home state. The Emergency Act exists for these type of circumstances. But one thing I will tell you... We should solve this legislatively. I, I agree with what the president said on Friday. We need to solve this legislatively. So it sounds like because, you don't want listen, him to declare an it's emergency. One, it's one-tenth of one percent of the federal budget. Mm -hmm. If we cannot do this together, what else can we not do in the future? This is not that big of a problem. Democrats in the past have voted for fencing and for wall. Why now do they disagree? Because it's President Trump? I think the American public understands this. We can mm -hmm. solve this in minutes, and these, these workers should be able to be paid 
It only takes few minutes inside the meetings. But when the Democrats will not even make a counteroffer, it's mm -hmm. unacceptable. I want to ask you about um, Iowa Republican Congressman Steve King. You called some of his language reckless when he, uh, in an interview with the New York Times, uh, said the term white nationalists and white supremacists, he didn't know when they became offensive. Some Republicans have come out very strongly here. As Jeb a, Bush. Well, Jeb Bush said it's not enough to condemn him, that party leaders actually have to do something, uh, either support a primary opponent to challenge him. Others have said he should be at least censured, should there be action against Congressman King? First and foremost, I came out at the very moment. Th that language has no place in America. That is not the America I know, and it's most definitely not the party of Lincoln. Should he be I, ha I have a scheduled meeting with him on Monday, and I will tell you this. I've watched on the other side that they do not take action when their members say something like this. Action will be taken. I'm having a serious conversation with Congressman Steve King on his future and role in this Republican Party. What does that mean? Because as a leader... There is a number of things you'll see that has taken place. But I will not stand back as a leader of this party, believing in this nation that all are created mm -hmm. equal, that that stands or continues to stand and have any role with us. Thank you very much, Congressman. We'll be back in a moment with more Face the Nation. With dozens of Democrats considering a 2020 presidential bid, on Saturday, the former mayor of San Antonio, Julian Castro, became the latest candidate. Castro gained national attention when he delivered the keynote address at the 2012 Democratic Convention, and he was also Secretary of Housing and Urban Development during the Obama administration. The grandson of a Mexican immigrant, Julian Castro has already been endorsed by a Democratic member of Congress, his twin brother, Joaquin. And Julian Castro joins us from the site of his announcement. The president visited your home state of Texas this week, went to the border, said there is a humanitarian and national security crisis. Do you agree with him that there is a crisis at the border? What I believe is that he's created um, a tragedy at the border. This policy of separating children from their parents uh, and the terrible way that uh, Customs and Border Protection has uh, managed its responsibilities uh, including the deaths of two children within the last few weeks. Uh, that's a real tragedy. Well, that family separation policy has been paused at least, but there are a record number of family units crossing the border, and that creates a lot of challenges. So what would you do? Uh, I don't believe that we should have uh, family detention for people that are seeking asylum or refugee status, uh, so that we should develop other ways to ensure that people are processed, that we're able to keep track of them, in the country. You were critical even under the Obama administration uh, specifically about their high level of deportations. So what do you offer as an alternative? If you're not going to detain and you're not going to deport, what do you do with illegal immigrants? Well, what I believe uh, we can do and what the Obama administration did do, uh, I believe toward the end of its tenure was to look at things like ankle monitors so that you're able to monitor where people are in the country. But we also need to be serious uh, about recognizing the right of people to seek asylum. Uh, and the president is playing games with this, blocking people's right to seek asylum. Uh, I would change that. Uh, I would make sure that uh, we push as hard as possible for comprehensive immigration reform so that for the people who are already here, uh, if they've been law-abiding, if they pay a fine, uh, that, that they can 
get an earned path to citizenship. You announced your candidacy and almost immediately the RNC issued a statement. I want to read it here to you. It says, Julian Castro has made history by becoming one of the biggest lightweights to ever run for president. He was a weak mayor who couldn't even handle being HUD secretary. This is obviously just another desperate attempt to become someone else's running mate. These are sharp words, but it's the first official attack on you. How do you respond and, and how do you explain why you are qualified to be commander in chief? You know, they're going to use those kinds of words for every single Democrat uh, that decides to run for president. Uh, I wouldn't put too much stock in that. I would just say to the American people directly, uh, I've had executive experience. I've led uh, one of the largest, most diverse cities in the country. I've led a federal agency at HUD uh, and, and done some great work to expand opportunity. Uh, I know what it takes to ensure that we have a government that functions well uh, and to help inspire people. Uh, I also have a life experience that I think resonates with a lot of Americans. You know, I'm here in my neighborhood that I grew up in, uh, grew up in a single-parent household, went to the public schools here in San Antonio, was able to go to college and law school and to reach my American dream. And I am motivated to make sure that every American can reach their dreams. Well, some of the things you outlined as part of your platform, Medicare for all, universal access to pre-kindergarten education, a Green New Deal. These put you in the more liberal or progressive wing of the Democratic Party. So one of the challenges for you is how do you attract centrists or people who perhaps were alienated by the president but aren't comfortable with being so reliant on the government as their main provider? What I hear out there is that there are a lot of folks, uh, a lot of people uh, who want us to invest in universal health care and I'm under no illusion that accomplishing something like Medicare for All would be easy, but I do believe that in this nation, in the richest nation on earth, that not a single person should be without health care when they need it. So what is that going to cost taxpayers? You've got to make some real changes there to be able to pay for it. No, you do. Uh, there's no question that it's going to take several things. I think it's going to take uh, asking... Um, wealthier individuals to pay their fair share. What does that We've mean? We've had basically the, the last 40 years essentially of, of lower and lower commitment on people at the very top. Um, same thing goes for corporations. You know, we have uh, corporations, multinational corporations uh, that are hardly paying anything in federal taxes. You want to increase we need to the corporate ask them tax to rate? pay their fair share. I think that we can consider different ways, uh, different proposals uh, to be able to raise more revenue from, uh, you know, the wealthiest corporations. All right. Uh, we will be tracking you and your campaign. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. There will be more of our interview on our website at facethenation.com. We'll be back in a moment. Memories make us laugh and cry. And sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices. But in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans, our memories are fading. And so is the old media that holds them. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako, and we're the founders of Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories. Here's how it works. Fill Legacy Box with your outdated media. We professionally digitize and send them back on DVDs, thumb drive, or the cloud. Look, those forgotten home movies, VHS tapes, film reels... And photos are degrading right before your eyes. Experience peace of mind and enjoy reliving the glory days. Join more than half a million families who have already trusted Legacy Box. Save your memories today.
Visit LegacyBox.com slash save, and for a limited time, get 40% off your order. That's LegacyBox.com slash save for 40% off. LegacyBox.com slash save. Welcome back to Face the Nation. For some expert analysis on the government shutdown, the emerging 2020 presidential race, and so much more, we'd like to welcome our political panel. Jeffrey Goldberg is the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. Sungmin Kim covers the White House from Capitol Hill for The Washington Post. David Nakamura is a White House reporter for The Washington Post. And Michael Crowley is the White House and national security editor at Politico. Um, Sungmin Kim, let me start with you. Did you hear any signs of progress from what Leader McCarthy talked about today? Um, there is no signs of progress anywhere that we've seen in the last several days. Um, I, we don't get a way out of the shutdown, at least legislatively, if three people aren't talking. That's the president, Nancy Pelosi, and Chuck Schumer. And by all accounts, they are not having any discussions right now after the president reportedly stormed out of that meeting in the Situation Room on Wednesday at the White House. Now, and that's why there seems to be sort of a sense of inevitability, or at least there was until Friday, about the president declaring a national emergency as kind of a way out of the shutdown, although the president seemed to kind of scale that back in his latest comments um, at the White House on Friday. But there are concerns with that as well. I mean, we uh, first of all, it's not a guarantee that the government reopens. Right. Um, uh, Congressman Mark Meadows, who is a Trump ally on Capitol Hill, told us that he's like, I don't really know why people think that just because the president does this, the government will reopen. Um, so that was kind of a sign for us that perhaps this isn't the easiest way out. And also the concern among Republicans about declaring this national emergency, you've gotten some pretty strong pushback uh, from senior Republicans saying this could be an abuse of executive power, something that they talked a lot about under the Obama administration. Um, Michael, we're hearing, you know, the White House seems to be focusing in on Speaker Pelosi and the opposition in the House. They seem to be seeing an opportunity with some of these new freshman Democrats who've been elected from districts that otherwise have been supportive of Trump. What do you make of this as a strategy? Can you actually pick them off? Do you get anywhere by doing so? Sure. I mean, I guess it's, uh, I don't know if it's uh, arbitrage or the concept uh, where you can exploit a gap between evidence of the president's past support and then a Democrat maybe, uh, in theory, overperforming in that same place. So those are the natural targets you go for. I haven't seen a lot of evidence that they are strategically um, uh, hitting those targets so far. And I know that we've reported at Politico that there are White House allies who want to see the president, for instance, go into some of those districts or have White House officials, you know, hold events in these members' districts, really put the pressure on them with local media and try to exploit that tension between a district that was pro-Trump in 16 and maybe went pro-Democrat in 18 and really put them on the spot. Uh, but, you know, fundamentally, what's so interesting here is the president really just seems to be doubling down on this base strategy, the one that he went for in 2018. Uh, and it seems like we're kind of setting the stage for the 2020 presidential campaign. And the president may feel that he just absolutely has to keep that base. But that base is 40-ish percent. And it's going to be tough for him to win re-election if he doesn't do something more broadly. So it's going to be interesting to see if he yeah. remains dug in on that. And, and to that point, we have some CBS News polling that we've done, and it seems that the president's approval rating is low in terms of how he's handling this shutdown, down to about 35 percent. Of course, for congressional Republicans, it's even lower than that, just 21 uh, percent. So this isn't necessarily a political win, or could it be? 
Well, you, that's a great point. The, we have also a new poll out today from The Washington Post, though, that shows something interesting, which is that although a majority of the country does blame the president uh, much more than Democrats for the shutdown, it also said that the support for a border wall has actually spiked among Republicans at large. Um, by 16 points over the past year as the president keeps talking about this. And I'm sure the president is seeing that and saying, look, this is broadly popular, not just among the base of the Republican Party, but 87 percent, according to this poll we have out today, uh, of the Republicans support it. Seventy percent of Republicans strongly support a border wall. So the president's reading that, and he really believes that his strategy is working, despite this idea that he's going to take the blame the longer this goes on. Uh, it's interesting you say that. The CBS News poll, in terms of how you build the wall, shows um, that about two-thirds, 67 percent of Americans, oppose declaring a national emergency to get us there. And, and, and it looks like it really breaks down along partisan lines, Jeff. Right, right. I mean, a national emergency might actually be the only way out of this impasse because uh, it doesn't seem likely. I was talking uh, this week to one of the new Democrats, going to a, the opposite of your point, one of the, not the most famous new Democrat on the Hill, but one of the, <laughs> right. one of the new ones. Um, and there <laughs> There is a, there's a strong ideological feeling that you can't give in on on any any compromise, even a compromise that gets them DACA or something else, um, which is a kind of interesting mirror of what you're seeing in the Republican base, which is Waller or nothing at all. Um, so you have everybody dug in and you have no negotiating going on. I'm always struck in these moments by the fact that the president, who uh, allegedly is one of the world's great negotiators, isn't much of a negotiator at all. Um, so I just don't I don't I don't see uh, I don't see this resolving itself. He, if anything, soon. we had a, a year ago, we, there was a big debate over immigration. There was the idea you trade a border wall funding for legalization for these dreamers. Uh, the president then turned that down by all uh, accounts uh, and asked for more. He said, we want to cut legal immigration. We want to speed up deportations, change laws that Democrats didn't agree with. And many, even moderate Republicans, don't want to change, which is providing some protection legally to uh, uh, immigrant children who are coming across. Uh, since then, he's made it tougher by the policies he's enacted unilaterally. The mm-hmm. separations at the border in June of children from their parents, uh, sending troops to the border during the campaign. Mm-hmm. From the Democrats I talked to, they said, this has made us even less, uh, more, more skeptical of him, that he either take a deal, but also his policies are so inhumane in their mind, we're not going to give him any uh, ground on the wall. A skepticism that's even more salient is the skepticism of the core of Trump's base worrying, the Ann Coulter base, let's call it, uh, worrying that he's going to give in. He's extraordinarily sensitive to that. That's why there's really not much hope for a, a negotiated settlement to this anytime soon, because he's so worried about that, that core of the core. Sungman, when we heard from uh, Senator Graham last week on this show, he was saying one of the things most offensive to him as representative of Republicans was this accusation that somehow in their calls for border security, they're being called racist. I thought it was interesting to hear from from Leader McCarthy here that when it comes to those accusations within his party right now around this Iowa Republican, uh, Steve King, that that he wants to take a stand on this. I found it really fascinating as well. I mean, I... Those comments from Leader McCarthy on your show just a few minutes ago was probably among the strongest condemnations that we have heard from senior House Republicans about uh, Congressman King's rhetoric and behavior. And I found it really interesting when he said, quote, actions will be taken against Congressman King, that he's meeting with him tomorrow to discuss this issue. Um, It sounds like he may be losing his committee memberships. There will be action taken against him. That was my assumption when, because that's usually what a party leader can do. Uh, The Congressional Black Caucus has also called for uh, Congressman 
Congressman King to be stripped of his committee assignments. Um, and it's just interesting because Congressman King has been controversial for a very long time. I mean, I'm, I'm from Iowa, so I'm familiar with his rhetoric. Um, but uh, And he said things about immigration during the immigration debate of a few years ago. But you are seeing this rise in very vocal condemnations of his rhetoric. I mean, it wasn't just Leader McCarthy. Uh, Senator Joni Ernst from Iowa called those remarks racist and said they were not representative of the state. Um, Senator Tim Scott exactly had an op-ed on it. Exactly as well. As well. So it's so the the rise uh, in opposition against what he's what the congressman has been saying, you know, frankly for a long time, has been interesting to watch. And that's really important because we're at a moment in this country where people worry that <clears throat> certain kinds of rhetoric are being normalized and that, mm-hmm. the, that the parameters of debate are expanding to areas that would have been intolerable a few years ago. And you think about, for instance, uh, what happened in Charlottesville and the degree that there was some, uh, some uh, almost uh, a tacit approval of that, or even when the president said there were you know, fine people on both sides in Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's nice to see that people are pushing back. They are still, to some degree, uh, enforcing those norms of conversation. I also want to ask you, Sungman, to clarify something. Leader McCarthy mentioned, I'm not in Puerto Rico. I'm here in Washington. What was the point he was trying to make there? Very subtle point. Very subtle. So there is a contingent of uh, congressional Democrats who are on um, an event in Puerto Rico right now for a super PAC. Um, The optics aren't great, I will say. During the shutdown. um, There is obviously, um, because a lot of the shutdown is a messaging war and optics war. um, And you, Leader McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy, made a point of saying, look, I am here in D.C. I am ready to work. You pointed out that he's usually in California when when you speak to him mm-hmm. and there's some unhappiness among Democratic quarters that that trip happened this week. I'm old enough to remember when people thought that Puerto Rico was a natural Republican stronghold, by the way, <laughs> but it doesn't seem like the party believes that anymore. You know, we did, uh, when we looked at the, the group, the delegation that did go to Puerto Rico, it looks like uh, Speaker Pelosi decided not to go, um, <laughs> though she had been originally expected to be there. Um, so it, it, it is an optics war, it's a rhetoric war, and unfortunately it doesn't sound like there's much traction to getting anything done. Uh, But I want to take a quick break, come back, because there's a lot more we need to sort through here. So we're going to take a short break. Stay with us. More from our panel. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time, and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 World's Most Ethical Companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you, that's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love. Or visit www.pacificlife.com. And we are back now with our panel. Uh, We started off the show with Speaker, excuse me, with Secretary of State Mike uh, Pompeo talking about his trip through the Middle East. Jeff, 
Can you tell me what the Syria policy is of the Trump administration? It's the best policy. It's all the best policies. That's the problem in understanding, probably in doing commentary on our foreign policies, that we have so many foreign policies at once. I, the secretary did a, made a valiant effort to suggest that we're not withdrawing from Syria, even though we're actually withdrawing from Syria, and, and the people who are coming out of Syria, the American troops, even if they're coming out in an orderly fashion, as he said, um, are there to fight terrorists. Um, and it's very, very hard to make the case that you're doubling down your fight against terrorism when you're leaving. Um, the, the core of the problem is that the president he works for is isolationist by disposition, doesn't understand why we're in the Middle East at all. Mike Pompeo comes from another tradition, quite the opposite tradition, believes in a muscular American presence. And we saw his uh, very, very strong speech in Cairo, which is a, allegedly a repudiation of Obama policy. Um, so even it's, down just to the to the orchestration of it, right, In Cairo, right. A little bit, a little bit in your face. I'm going to Cairo and I'm repudiating what you just said in a really unusual way. Um, and, and so you have so many different foreign policies in, inside one administration. It's hard to keep them straight. Think and about this, though. I was thinking about this. You know, the president's other big gambit on foreign policy is this uh, ongoing dialogue of some sort with North Korea. Think of what uh, Kim Jong-un must be seeing here. You have the, the hawkish Secretary of State and National Security Advisor John Bolton with one view of how to approach Iran and stay in Syria. Mm -hmm. And the president saying, no, you know, I have my own view. I'm just going to do the opposite. You see now Kim Jong-un continue to send letters to President Trump, very flattering. He wants to deal directly with the president because he sees this sort of uh, a chance, you know, to sort of maybe get some gains. I mean, the idea... But if he's smart, he might yeah. know that... that that those gains are not durable. They're not durable. Uh, yeah, in, in, but, in, but, you know, Kim Jong-un's goal is to re reduce troop presence, right, in the, in the Korean Peninsula. Look, look what's going on here in Syria. Right, and to yeah. cut back all the military yeah. umbrella that umbrella. the United States has mm -hmm. in the region. Uh, on Iran, to add to Jeff's point, you heard the Secretary of State this week say, we are going to try to get every boot, Iranian boot, out of Syria. How do you do that when you don't have a military there? Can you convince them with... Strong words. I, I don't know. You made the excellent point that the threat of military force, obviously, uh, is, is when you couple that with effective diplomacy, um, that's one way to do it. No, it doesn't seem... I mean, look, this is why the Israelis and many of the Gulf Arabs were so nervous when Trump announced this impromptu policy shift, radical policy shift, uh, because you, you leave Syria that allows Iran to come in fully. Pompeo's speech in Cairo was a very, very anti-Iran speech. Nothing is adding up. This is the problem. I mean, you have to have policies that actually correspond to the reality on the ground. And so I, I think it's very, very hard Mark, to understand how this works. Pompeo did say something today that I've heard him say before that I think could be worth focusing on. He keeps referring to the withdrawal of uniformed American troops from Syria. Now, I don't know exactly what he means, but I'm wondering to what degree the administration at least may be telling itself officials like Pompeo in defending Trump's policy, we're going to have the CIA in there. We might even have right. contractors. We know there's been a lot of debate around this administration with the possibility of using contractors. So I think that's something to keep an eye on. I think it's uh, uh, noteworthy that he keeps stressing that word. It's a good, good point to parse the language on yeah. that because clearly having an intelligence presence is incredibly important in a place that is home to so many terror groups at this point. That's one of the right. things that Israelis were concerned about. Right, uh, of course. Losing. I mean, the other quick point to make on this is that... Um, <laughs> Pompeo's speech was very, very hard in Iran, but one of the reasons it's not flying in the Middle East is that recognizing that all diplomacy is hypocrisy to some degree. There was not a, a harsh word to be said about Saudi Arabia. And one does not have to think that Iran is anything other than the leading state sponsor of terror. You, you can still think that, but also think that our putative allies 
are also uh, human rights violators and authoritarian despotic regimes. It's mm-hmm. fascinating to watch this week. Uh, Michael, I want to ask you, we, we did ask both the secretary and Leader McCarthy about these reports in the past few days about the president's relationship with Russia or at least his decision to not make public uh, the notes that he has had from interpreters from private meetings with Vladimir Putin. Why is it important that the rest of the national security establishment be part of this? As Leader McCarthy said, this is just about a personal relationship. Sure. Well, there's the, there's the sort of traditional reason, which is that the foreign policy machine works better if all the smart people who are looking at it from different angles, people who have regional focuses, who have expertise in Putin's psychology, who are arms control experts, can see the conversation and weigh in and, and, you know, referring back to parsing language, hey, it was really important and significant that Putin used this word. You know, he hasn't used this word in six years, and it means that they're interested in this again. Or somebody can point out, I can see that he's putting pressure on this issue, trying to move us. The president, who, uh, you know, is totally new to diplomacy as of two years ago, wouldn't be picking up on those things. That's just how it traditionally works. And you have, it's almost like crowdsourcing, right? Get all the best minds looking at this, and then you right. get together and talk about it. Okay, so now the Trump-specific problem problem is that, you know, we know senior officials in our own Justice Department at one point a couple years ago, according to the great reporting by the New York Times yesterday, uh, believed it was at least worth investigating whether the president, I can't believe I'm saying these words on television, it's like, am I living in a dream, (laughs) may have been acting as an agent for the Russian government. It's not a dream, it's a bad movie. (laughs) I mean, a a bad movie, the greatest movie ever made, Uh, who knows? It's an extraordinary report. It's it's stunning. And I want to say... to go back, and then the Washington Post, by the way, followed up with a great report that after a meeting he had with Vladimir Putin and only a translator in the room uh, asked the translator for those notes and took them away, and they were not circulated through the government. Just very quickly, last point, David, to your earlier point about leaders seeing the officials around Trump and going around them yeah. and going straight to right. Trump. A lot of reason to think there's that Vladimir Putin is doing that. Whether or not it's some kind of a spy movie running an, a, an agent thing or just pure psychology, that's the game he's playing. It's also extraordinary to have the America's top diplomat, the Secretary of State, twice clarify that the president is not a national security threat yeah. and, laugh, and, and say that's laughable. Right. Um, it's worth dilating on this for one moment, that we're in a situation where we're discussing in serious terms whether or not the president of the United States is a Russian intelligence asset. And that's, the, that's what's happening in Washington today. And that is truly remarkable thing that we're experiencing right now. Yeah. And the president's uh, response on this about, you know, keeping this meeting quiet is, and keeping people out of it is not just to have a better relationship with a leader like Vladimir Putin, but also that there's been leaks of his yeah. other, especially early in his presidency, there's some really embarrassing leaks about what he said to other world leaders. It made him look foolish, made him look reckless. Um, but now he's sort of created this extra problem that uh, either there's he, because he's not staying on some sort of script or, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, going with talking points that are developed by a national security agency uh, or staff uh, to be prepared for these meetings, sort of ad-libbing and having these sort of embarrassing right. leaks come out. Now he's left with this situation where it looks certainly bad um, if, you know, if he's, keep, if he's taking notes from his translator. And the story's not going away. We'll continue it, but we have to leave the panel here. And we'll be back in a moment with former Obama administration Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson. I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. 
And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use, which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot com slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom. We're joined now by former Department of Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson. Welcome to Face the Nation. Margaret, thanks for having me. Uh, in addition to being Homeland Security Secretary, before that you had also been General Counsel at the Pentagon. So I know Correct. you're very familiar with uh, some of the legal authorities here yes. that we may need to, to look at. Because the president says that he may uh, declare a national security emergency in order to get border funding for this wall. and Take it from other monies that Congress had already approved and use it in a way they didn't approve. Does he have the ability legally to do this? Well, first, Margaret, I just have to say there is an emerging crisis uh, in Homeland Security on our border by taking the very workers we depend upon for our security, land, sea, air, Secret Service, Coast Guard, Border Patrol, customs agents, uh, and so forth, and inflicting on them all sorts of stress and anxiety in their personal life about whether they're going to be paid and when. Uh, that's the security crisis that I see from the workforce in DHS. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes legally to whether or not the president can declare a national emergency to get around the dispute. Earlier in the week, the administration seemed to be talking about using a Department of Defense authority to take money that's been designated by Congress for military construction toward another project. The law specifically allows for that upon the declaration of a national emergency, but that particular provision is typically used overseas to support the military, like building detention facilities or military housing. The lawyers in the administration now seem to have come to a provision that allows for a reprogramming, as we refer to it, taking money from Army Civil Works projects here in the United States uh, that were at some point essential to national defense and then redesignating it, reprogramming it for some other Army Civil Works project. Some of that aid money for Puerto Rico and Correct. money for California. In the so in my defense. view, that's probably slightly more legally plausible. The earlier defense authority was really trying to jam a square peg in a round hole. Mm -hmm. This one is slightly more plausible, but politically highly objectionable because you're taking billions of dollars away from important civil works projects to recover from the hurricanes and the wildfires. And I, I would predict there'd be huge, huge objection to doing that. Ultimately, this, this has to be something for our political leadership to work out, mm -hmm. to get the government back to work. That's the most basic function of our civilian political leadership, to keep the government open and pay the workers. Well, and to your point, it is worth what you underscored there, that a number of people who work on national security issues aren't getting paid the because of this. The people we depend upon crisis. to find explosives in luggage, to find weapons in luggage, the people we depend upon to secure our borders to look for contraband at mm -hmm. ports, to look for narcotics at ports, are the people that are under great stress right now because of this shutdown. And it must be leading, I think I know this workforce, it must be leading to all kinds of uncertainty, stress and anxiety, and frankly, anger and resentment. Uh, we see reports of TSOs calling in sick. 
And if this is not resolved soon, I predict that that's going to go in the wrong direction and we're going to start seeing longer and longer lines at airports. When you were at DHS, I know you said that at that time in 2015, you saw the influx um, in apprehensions of children and family units as an emerging crisis. Now the Trump administration is seeing uh, record numbers of those family units coming across the border. They're saying this is a crisis now, and it sounds like the one you saw coming. So this is a unique challenge for them. Are they wrong to call that a crisis? It is very definitely a humanitarian crisis uh, because of the poverty and violence in Central America. And the way to deal with this problem, frankly, is make a long-term investment in helping to eradicate the poverty and violence in the three countries that are probably the most violent on Earth. That's not a quick, simple, easy fix, which El Washington Salvador, likes. Honduras, and Guatemala. Correct. And so uh, we need to make a long-term political commitment to investing and dealing with those push factors. Otherwise, we're going to continue to deal with this problem for a very long time. Border wall is what I hear you saying, not the most effective way. Um, Let me get, though, to to the nuts and bolts of the family members here, because the Obama administration uh, faced some challenges on the question of whether they could detain families together for more than 20 days. Mm -hmm. That's at the heart of the Trump administration's, you know, defenses as to why they were justifying this separation of families. So what alternatives are there? Well, you're referring to the Flores decision, yes. which uh, imposed basically a limit on us to hold people for longer than, than 20 days. I think that there has to be a range of tools that DHS can go to in, in a crisis when you see a spike like this. Again, it requires a long-term investment in the push factors, but we need things like, we, you know, we can always assess whether there is more border security that's necessary, more surveillance, more road, perhaps fortifying walls. In my judgment, there also needs to be more immigration judges Mm -hmm. to move these cases along. But it does require a range of things and a long-term political commitment to dealing with the underlying factors that lead to this crisis. Very quickly, do you expect the Supreme Court to uphold the DACA ruling? Uh, I I hesitate to predict what this Supreme Court Mm -hmm. will do. I think that there is adequate legal basis for the program. All right. At the heart of of some of these potential solutions. So thank you very much. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, former mayor of San Antonio and 2020 presidential candidate Julian Castro, and former Secretary of Homeland Security Jay Johnson. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow the show and CBS News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? 
There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital edition wherever you get your books.